0: Hello and welcome to another Sassy episode of Lee2B. I am your host, Lee Moskowitz, and today we're going to get right into the Sass. We have a super exciting guest today, Matt Haller, a veteran GTM leader. And Matt, give me a one sentence, very quick recap, who you are. One sentence. Let's do it in one sentence.
1: I've been working in technology for
0: a long time, or what feels like a long time, 10 years this year. The reason I had you do it in one sentence is because your career is so fun and I have so many pointed questions. The The biggest question I have right now, so e- your job title is Manager Central Strategic Initiatives. That's I correct. think I can say this on behalf of all my listeners. What the f- does that mean?
1: I'm not sure what is unclear about it. I, I manage our central strategic initiatives. It's very, it's in the namely. Yeah, I, I understand the confusion. Um, basically, I, I think that this is, it's a nuance that I, I notice going from smaller pre-public startups to a much larger company like LinkedIn. There's just a lot more levels of, of organization. So in order to get things done, and solve some of the bigger, meatier problems, it involves much more coordination with many more teams than I had had ever experienced outside of working for frankly some of my largest clients back when I was in consulting. So so myself and our team take some of the, the, the biggest sales ops projects for all of LinkedIn's marketing business and we work on trying to coordinate the right people at the right time to drive the right solution for the business.
0: So that to me kind of sounds like a combination of ops, partnerships, sales, general people management. What would you say are some of like the the main skills that you need in this role? Uh
1: prioritization uh, be it people management being able to, to manage your your stakeholders the thing that I talk to to my team a lot about is is managing optics the phrase that i i say over and over again to the point that people now have attributed to me is play chestnut checkers and what I tell them is whenever you're going through a big change there is a change and there's always a reaction to it and that reaction can be anticipated so, Try to think at least two steps ahead of the things we need to do to drive some of these these strategic initiatives forward to get ahead of the difficult conversations, people's reactions, because people are people, they're going to react the way that they will. And we can, if we prepare for that, we'll be better positioned to, to manage that change. And also, like, it's a lot easier. Just, things are easier.
0: Yeah. And I think one role, I mean, you'll tell me, but one of the main things on the startup level is, is definitely ARR. And then when you get to an organization like LinkedIn, I imagine, yeah, ARR is a, a thing, but someone in your role probably cares a bit more about, actually, I don't want to speak for you. What, what would you care more about? So in my team's role, we'll have different projects for different, at different times. So
1: usually those things are, are pre-selected by the business. But some, some of those projects would be process, management, um, trying to redesign some of the things that we've done for, for a while in order to, to reach the next phase of growth. Some of those things might be technology related and making sure that we have the right systems and tools to support the things we want our sales teams to do. But you're right that a lot of that work involves operations. It involves trying to sell ideas to people. And the biggest part of it is, is ma- managing change and change is and always will be scary.
0: When LinkedIn, Facebook, when anyone changes their their layout, a color, a platform, people go crazy. People hate change. Change is scary. How how do you manage that in, in the workplace? So most of the changes that I've managed have been within the specifically
1: the workflows that that reps will do on their day to day. And The thing that I've tried to ground myself in throughout the the whole process is these are folks who have fifty percent of their pay at risk, which means fifty percent of their pay is tied to the production of the things that they do. I don't have that. I haven't had that since I was on an incentive plan. Most people who are working in corporations don't have that as well. And so when they see change, it's not just, oh, here's this change. And it's an inconvenience for me. I just take some time to get accustomed to the new logo, the new layout, and to learn some new features that are being given to me. It's this could actually impact my livelihood. So whenever we're trying to drive changes with this, with sales reps, I try to pair the, the frustrating stuff that nobody wants to do with a better outcome. Things like, if I want you to work on a, an online workflow in Salesforce for your pipeline, yes, I could use the, the UI that's built in within Salesforce. Most reps I've spoken to have said, yeah, that works, but it's a little clunky and it can be a little bit slow going back and forth. So let's pair that with something that's going to be an, a Salesforce or a CRM copilot that's going to help them work through those, those stages right in their daily workflow, whether whether on their, their Zoom calls, their team calls, whatever. That way, what we're doing is we're creating what I call like mutually reinforcing processes where we're saying, I want to give you some really fun automations and tools that's going to help you get more time back to spend with clients and hopefully make more money. In return, the expectation is that the data that you're putting into that system is going to be up to date. And that's just going to be a byproduct of the way that you do business. And that to me is the key because what we've got to solve for when you're talking about sales teams specifically is the time they have in front of their customers, right? I think that back when back when my consultant gave we me your benchmark we saying like a like the, the benchmark of of time spent with customers was like 40%, which is crazy because if I want someone to drive over a million dollars in ARR, you would think that I want them to be spending as much time as humanly possible in front of clients. So so that's kind of the way that I think about change. But also it leads back to a broader philosophy about the way that I
0: think about just engaging with sales teams in general. It is the place for, for B2B in a larger sense. So when you talk about some of your initiatives, are they more in terms of ads and, and getting clients to maybe to commit more there? Is it getting them to kind of just understand the algorithm? Where would you say you you focus more on then?
1: So I work, I work in our advertising business. So the vast majority of of the work that we're doing is either like is it process related and helping helping our reps work through some of the objections that their clients have and try to set up our teams for success? But they also might be technology related and making sure that our sales teams have the types of infrastructure that they need to work in, in a media business, which I think this is the interesting thing about LinkedIn. Is that it is many things to many people. It is a SaaS business, it is a media business, it is a B2C business. And to watch that that machine run is is really, really interesting because it is there's so many different levels to to make that work. And the level of complexity is really, really impressive to, to see the team manage. For a lot of people, and this is what I think goes for most users on LinkedIn, it is it is a place where there is not that much content. There's not that much high value content. So I, I I think I've told two people already this morning that some of the best things they can do is just start to post more and post about their experiences. I think that this podcast is a really good example of that, where you're helping unshackle some of the, the, the things that we don't talk about in business. You're bringing people on who historically don't make it onto those B2B podcasts and shining a light on, on that different set of talent. So. The more we share our experiences about work on LinkedIn, I think the more value you get from the platform. And then you'll also, as a second benefit, you might figure out your ICP as well.
0: Yeah. And so you talked about content and I came across a post of yours from a while ago that I really resonated with. And it was talking about your transition from focusing more on training to content coaching could you speak to that? What do you see as difference between maybe training somebody and then coaching somebody?
1: I think there, the difference is what the end goal is, right? When you're training somebody, it is a repetition of a previously set process or goal. There's a there's something that, that we've already designed. So I want to train you on how to do this over and over and over again. That's different from, I might say, here's a couple of, of like, Things to consider, some phases of your process around creating content that might add value. But coaching is really about unblocking somebody and helping them realize their own potential in their own way, which I think is is something that is, is really hard to get right.
0: That too is why so many tools out there now are focusing on sales enablement because it's about helping your team, getting them the insights, because you need to be the the better coach. So it all it all levels up, right. Matt, we touched on this, but you transitioned from the world of SaaS into an enterprise media company like LinkedIn. What are some of the, the differences? How are you prepared for the role? Were there any learning curves? Could you speak to that?
1: I have done this transition actually twice now. I started my career working in networking consulting, which was mostly SaaS companies in the Bay Area, and then went to go work for a a digital advertising startup that focused on retargeting. So that was the first place that I really got exposed to campaigns and impressions and how all of that worked. But that was like eight years ago. And so going back into the world of, of SaaS and trying to think about ARR, there's very different just economics that go with that business model versus media, the thing that I, I constantly am reminding people when I'm, I'm talking to like my SaaS counterparts at LinkedIn is when you sign a contract, you don't have to really worry about that contract for like, maybe 12 to 36 months, we sell a campaign and I have to sell the next campaign while the current campaign is running. That is such a big difference.
0: Again. As a marketer, I am always looking at my spend. I am nitpicky, not just because I am very possessive of my ad campaigns, but because oftentimes we have to justify every dollar. So with marketers, I know everything comes down to that ad spend. Is is that the same there? Yes. Yeah. So you're focused on, on like,
1: how do I maximize my, my ad spend? You are, are, are surgically dissecting your performance. And you're constantly justifying it to to the sales team, to your to your leadership, to the company leadership. That is a very different influence motion than what you will get in get in SaaS. And that is, and like media companies will try to get around that by trying to package up ad spend as part of packages and things. But the reality is that people people like when they don't have money to spend on advertising, they don't have money to spend on advertising. So it just because the economics are different it was it was a big transition to to rethink about the way that we need to resource the business the kinds of of roles that you need to stitch together in order to to deliver an above average client experience so that was a bit of a change but i've I've always really liked media i've always really liked content so it it's been it's been a nice refresher coming back into it and and getting more into the world of like on the large linkedin size enterprise level
0: So now that you're just working in in content and media all day, has that changed how you personally consume content and media? Because again, I know as a social media guy, if I'm on Facebook all day for a client, the last thing I want to do is go on Facebook at home. And I'm just very, I'm always just looking at the ads and stuff. I can't get out of it. Has that changed, for for example, for you, how you consume media? That's a good question. I think
1: I'm I, under, I think I try to understand advertising a little bit more. So I'll see an ad like on TV and I'll either try to guess the product or the company or like the, the positioning, like why the company was making that decision. Um, it's a very similar like vein of thought. I used to do a lot of sales incentive design work. And so with that work, you would try to understand the company's strategy and then pay somebody, like the downstream effect was you want to design a plan to pay someone to do, do the things that will get you to your company goals. Advertising the same way. it's. But I'm trying to do it in reverse and say, I'm seeing this ad. How do I try to back into what this company cares about and where they're at um, based on the kinds of advertising that they're, they're showing?
0: I do want to get into partnerships a bit because I know you have a ton of experience there. Yeah. But on the subject of media, on the subject of partnerships. So this feels even longer than it was. It's only a few months ago but we've seen some just LGBTQ partnerships make headlines a lot of the times for the wrong reasons. And I know this kind of is more B2C, but obviously you remember the drama with, with Dylan Mulvaney and Bud Light and then the target pride collection backlash. I just yep. want, what's your general thought as, again, I mean, this is B2C, but as a media person, as a partnership person, what's your, and as a gay, of course, like what's your take on that?
1: On the whole, I think that where we are at as a country and the way that we grapple with ideas is fundamentally broken because people have fewer places to go to get their information and that information has become more polarized. And so as a result, most people don't want to hear or engage with with a topic. So I think as it relates to a lot of the LGBT backlash, I think that a lot of it's frankly like overblown and... I don't think is the direction that we want our society to go in. But if those are the messages that I'm being fed from the places that I trust, then how do how am I supposed to rationalize a, a response that's normal, right? That's, that's balanced.
0: All Target wanted to do was put out pride clothes and then people who hate gay people just complain about it. And the reality is they're a consumer company and there's a lot of people who just don't like gay people, so they still have to sell to them. Now, that being said, that being said, well, I think that there's a whole there's definitely a
1: a, a there's a rational and non-emotional reason why we are in the position we're in today. Target absolutely had an opportunity to stand up and say that we do we'd like stand by this as a company because they've been doing it for the last 10 years and making money off of this segment anyway. But to say that we are going to to not do something because of fear is giving in. And that's not helping us move forward. That's helping legitimize a position that, like, we, like I just said, is not based in reality. I don't want to discount someone's very real fear that they might have, but that fear isn't always based on reality. And the fact that we don't have a conversation in this country that crosses aisles, that crosses perspectives and shares ideas
0: is not helping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you said that much nicer than I do. I personally don't think I need to share the idea of gay people existing. That, so, And I know I'm, I'm twisting your words, but I think a, a part of it, too, is yes, we need to have those conversations, but the reality is, Target, there's going to be people who don't like that. You have the decision to make. Are you doing this as a real partnership? Or are you doing this as a, oh, a yeah. quick selling move? Yep.
1: And I think with Target, the the their reaction made it seem more like it was a cheap selling move. That they found mm-hmm. a profitable segment and were hawking products, not all of which were good, by the way, just to make sure that we're on the same page about that. Oh, I, I didn't look. <laughs> who buys
0: who buys who buys pride stuff at Target? <laughs> yeah. Support LGBT businesses, okay? Um, That's the Dylan. That's the tea. The the Dylan Mulvaney. Well, we're gonna get into the tea later. The Dylan Mulvaney thing. Like, I didn't even know who she was. I saw the video where she gets like it's it's beer with her face on it, right? I thought it was super cute, and then I just see a whole kerfuffle, and I, I didn't get that at all. It's dumb. It's dumb. I mean, on the one hand, like if you if you're gonna be that angry
1: about a beer, like. There's probably a lot of other things we are going to be angry about. Like, just, is that where we want to spend our energy? Like,
0: I don't. So, but here's, here's Bud, Bud Light's thing. And this comes to Target Market, ICP. I don't know any gays who drink Bud Light. Uh, do you, do that, you drink beer? That was my
1: take mm-hmm. on it. I was like, yeah. okay, I understand that there's if the, the brand's only so big. It needs to expand somewhere. And I and mm-hmm. I understand the logic of like, okay, so we've got a lot of people who drink beer. Gays drink, be- drink. period. So let's sell them a light beer. Mm-hmm. I don't
0: Understand know any gays who drink Bud Light. That.
1: Very much that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't know that many gays outside of Silver Lake in Los Angeles who drink beer.
0: My boyfriend drinks a ton of beer. To me, I always say it tastes like liquid bread. Like, I don't get it. Ah. But no, I-, I do know a ton of gays who who drink beer. They just drink other stuff. I don't know anyone who drinks Bud Light. So... Again, I thought that was super cute I get the mismatch but I think it speaks to partnerships and the whole point of partnerships to me is about maintaining trust with your partner as well as all of the other stakeholders yep. so if we go back maybe to more more b2b how how do you build trust in, in partnerships with with different stakeholders and the actual partner themselves
1: there's there's two kinds of trust there's personal trust and institutional trust. Personal trust is the, the relationship that we have. I show up to the table, I'm gonna hold up my my end of the bargain. And those can be as simple as I'm gonna call you when I say I'm gonna call you and make you feel like you're my priority, to showing up on time to meetings, to when the partner's asking for something, you you are transparent about what you are doing to try to help them help them along. That That only goes so far. It goes pretty far. You can, you can patch over a lot of business things with really, really good interpersonal relationships. But then there's also institutional trust, which is partners are part of my business strategy, but part of the way that we make money. I'm going to demonstrate that because the difference between, and this is, I think, is a really important message for pre-public startups specifically, your partners don't make money in the same way that you do. Unless you're partnering with another pre-public startup, they don't have a bank of cash that they get to draw on when they're trying to do something. They don't have the ability to say, I'm going to take a loss on a certain part of my business because I'm growing my ARR. They make money based on, this is specifically true for your value-added reseller services partners, they make money on the things that they do. So it's important to say, if partners are a strategy that I want to employ, that I have, yes, people who are going to manage the personal relationships with those partners, but also demonstrate that they are genuinely a part of the way that I want to grow my business and, and this is the key, are not going to compete with the way that I make money.
0: Other ways I've seen some partnerships fail. They treat it less as a partnership and a transaction where it's like, what's in it for me? And yes, that's part of it, but again, it should be mutually beneficial. The other part I say is just that it takes a long time generally Track revenue from any type of partnership. So you know, maybe it's immediate. Most of the time, it takes a long time. Not all stakeholders and, and people are willing to spend that that money. So, what would you say to to somebody who wants to invest into partnership and just having some realistic expectations of that?
1: Build a plan. Build a plan. And specifically, say what are our objectives going to be because. The thing about building a partner channel is yes, it takes a long time because it takes a long time to build up trust. If you're working with services partners, you have to train them. That takes a long time. But even if you're working on kind of like a joint go to market with, with another company, there's products, there's engineering, there's enablement, there's there's o- operations. There's a lot of different components that go into making those things work. But that doesn't mean that you don't get those early indicators of whether this relationship is working or not. right? A partnership is very much like like a relationship. It's supposed to be like a marriage, and it can't be one side or another. So as you were thinking about building out that plan, it should be a two-year runway and build in milestones along the way that show whether or not that we are we're building the foundation that we need to build the kinds of partnerships
0: we're looking for. So a while back, I saw a super cute photo that you posted where you got engaged from pto are you are you still engaged are you planning the wedding are you married we we got married in march in palm springs okay so i was very curious what is similar to planning a wedding that is similar to building a partnership also congrats mazel I forgot to say that um, <laughs> thank you thank you yeah i mean the whole thing
1: the whole, i mean and i think our our situation was a little unique because those people who know me know that I don't do anything to like medium difficulty. I like to like do it on hard mode all the time. Uh, So while we were planning the wedding, my husband was applying to medical school and studying for the MCAT. I was also in the process of renovating the house that we had purchased and had not been touched for like 25 years. It was a lot of things that we would discover. So a lot of shit going on while we're trying to plan, plan the wedding. And I but I say that as the the need to be organized to trust my partner both on what he can commit to but also talk about what he can't do what are the no goes? because that's where we can just have an honest conversation about the work that that needs to get done and hopefully if we're lucky have some fun along the way we were lucky that we did shout out to
0: the palm springs convention center love you guys so we talked about spilling tea a bit before, but now we're really going to spill spill the tea because you know why? Dump it. It's time for Spill the Tea with Lee. Love it. This segment where we spill the tea on all things B2B. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. So Matt, you've been a consultant, an advisor, even a founder, you've worked with dozens of sales organizations let's be honest being a gay guy consultant in a room full of straight men which is often the case can be challenging and it's gotten more diverse now but it's, it's tend to be a boys club can you just speak to to that is there any tea that, that you have on, on that any stories that stick out
1: oh boy yeah yeah there have been plenty of times that I've been the, the only gay person on a team. What I think is always the most fascinating is the questions you get, never from women, by the way. It's always my straight male colleagues that get very interested in in how I knew that I was gay, what I like to do as a gay man. And it is fucking bizarre. It's just weird. Like, I don't ask them right. what's going on, how they knew that they were straight. Like, no. Like, if you have a question about that, Google it. Or, I'm sorry, let me rephrase mm-hmm. that. I work for a it's Microsoft. It's go on Bing. Bing it.
0: Uh, or just go on LinkedIn it. too. Maybe ask a question, see what kind of responses you get <laughs> to that question. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you about that. Yeah. Follow um, me. <laughs> I mean, I, so obviously, before my, my hair was rainbow and I was walking Pride flag. I would, I would maybe code switch a bit, like, you know, deep in your voice, you know, talk a bit clearer because, you know, I was from the agency side. So a lot of times you, you're, you're trying to get their trust. There's a cast of characters. So we've all been there.
1: Yeah. Now code switching is very real. And I think that what was interesting about consulting is that there's, there was like three spheres. There's the client sphere where you are in, you're with your executives and that's a performance, like no doubt about it. Like, yes, you have your knowledge, you have your slides, but you are presenting, you are performing and you are demonstrating that the amount of money they're paying for you is valuable. You've got your team sphere, which amalgamation of people who you honestly may have never worked with before, may have never even known existed. And then you have your personal sphere of your friends. And I made some really, really amazing friends at both of the consulting firms that I worked at number of them are are queer and i could not have felt more supported by them because we get to joke about those situations that i talked about before because of how just ubiquitous they end up being Mm -hmm.
0: and yeah we we all have similar stories there's reasons why we like joke cry at it (laughs) all right so more tea (laughs) so linkedin reactions if you could if you could introduce a brand new reaction Mm. We have the thumbs up, the heart, the laugh. What would you? What would you add? Mm. And when would you use it? Honestly, I think we need a cringe reaction. Maybe that's a. Maybe that's a
1: hot take, but sometimes people need just a gentle like this. This saying it maybe before we publicly cancel them.
0: <laughs> what a, I would love a tea icon like ooh like there's some tea we're spilling ooh, here. Right? spicy chili peppers. It's, well, Chili Piper owns that so. Uh, th- I don't think they own the the,
1: the pepper emoji. But they maybe kind of, of do Piper. on
0: LinkedIn. Maybe Chili,
1: Chili Piper. Did I mean, it, it? it is
0: hot take, but like Chili Piper, I mean, I associate it with that logo or emoji.
1: Well, that's an excellent example of a brand that has
0: saturated their market. Shout out Chili Piper. But, but again, so like that, I'm the B2B SaaS guy. So that's what I think of. I don't know if all listeners. That's fair. I don't think.
1: I don't think that Chili's employees would agree with that take.
0: Oh, I don't do fast food that much. Plus, I'm vegetarian. So, Mm. again, I don't think of that.
1: We have a friend who, like, his idea of, like, a celebration meal is going to Chili's. And
0: I... Welcome to Chili's. I just... You do you. This podcast of Lita B was sponsored by Chili's. (laughs) Just kidding. Big start in restaurants. (laughs) <laughs> what if what if LinkedIn introduced a LinkedIn live karaoke what do you song do you
1: want to see your oh? <laughs> so do you want to see your boss singing karaoke on LinkedIn
0: they do this at all these Saster and Dreamforce conferences why not on LinkedIn that's true plus there's that's some true. good singers out there there's that some good singers true. on LinkedIn but like if you had to do like a karaoke on LinkedIn live what song would you pick
1: Oh, it's going to be waterfalls by TLC every time, 11 times out of 10.
0: That's a great, it's a great business mantra too. Don't go chasing monofalls. Yeah, chase a few. Just stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Yes. Stay in your swim lane. Every product needs to find their product market fit and then stick to, see, I can do anything as a B2B analogy here. (laughs) So we talked a bit about partnerships before. You've probably been to so many events that we're talking about. What was a maybe memorable or hilarious networking you, you moment you've you've witnessed during your, your partnership career? I went to
1: Saster the first year that they, they moved to the San Jose Convention Center. And one of the companies, I can't remember which one it was, was doing a live band karaoke, speaking of karaoke. So the friend that I was with, walked up on stage and he was like I'd like to sing Chandelier by Sia but can you take it down a step because my voice doesn't go that high they said no and started playing so here he was up on stage in front of 250 people belting out Chandelier and hitting hitting the notes but he was he got up off stage and he was like I need water I need air <laughs> I need a break <laughs>
0: I'm telling you, so if that was broadcast live on LinkedIn, so many people would watch that. I'm not saying it'll be good, but so many people would watch that.
1: All right, I'm going to shout out to to the LinkedIn marketing team, LinkedIn Idol. That's it.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) That's mm it. I'll be a judge. I'll be a judge. (laughs) We talked a bit about some of just, you know, gay shit. LinkedIn has has been known to be a place for professional talk, work-oriented things. Lately, it's, it's become very much more human and people are are sharing more about their lives, and I love that. Some people do not think that that LGBTQ stuff should be on LinkedIn in any type of capacity. What's your response to that? Uh, Well, there are seven billion people on this planet, almost
1: one billion of which are on LinkedIn. So if you think that your storage is the only story that exists, I'm going to say you are sorely mistaken, and people exist in all different shapes and sizes, and so you have two choices. You can either get upset about it, or you can just go on with your life and let them live their experience.
0: That's my take on it. I've been given some advice recently, though. And it, it, it's it's kind of good advice. I'm sure they're, they're right, that if I were to potentially tone down some of the stuff, I might have an easier time getting jobs. And I think that's correct, because... I know for a fact cybersecurity jobs that I've interviewed for like I'm just a bit too political for their clients who could be in government, different countries, stuff like that. So I know that type of stuff. My my take though is I don't want to work for companies who I would who I have to hide or I have to feel that way. So that that's the reason why it is so loud and that's the way I have it and yeah. So I'd rather say on a, I'm not going to say that hire me. I mean, why spend, work is hard enough. Why spend
1: any energy trying to be something that you're not? I, I talk about, honestly, I talk a lot about the days before I came out or when very few people knew. And there was an element of when I'm with those people, that's my safe space where I get to be who I am. I was a better person, happier person, more productive person. There was about eight months of my life that I knew that I was gay and didn't tell anybody. And those still are the eight hardest months I've ever lived because trying to live two lives, keep your stories straight, be a different person, is exhausting, it's depressing, it's demoralizing, it's dehumanizing. So I think that A, you don't have a choice in who you are and B, the good news is by being out loud and proud, you are only going to attract the people who do accept you for who exactly. you are. And in the nicest way, if people don't want to see that or agree with it, fuck them.
0: See, you're so much nicer than, than I am, but you still said kind of what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I Privately, my, my thoughts are much more... Publicly, they're much more balanced and moderate.
0: So I know we have to wrap up soon. I am curious, is there... Is there anything exciting in terms of just B2B trends, content, media, that you you see as really a uni- unique opportunity for B2B to capitalize on? Or is, is just something that more brands should pay attention to? Just keep spending money on your digital ads. Just keep juicing them. And nothing can go wrong. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I was ready kidding. to jump in, so I, but I knew you were joking.
1: Yeah, no, I think that uh, this is
0: the part of the podcast where any marketer like paused it or just like stopped in their tracks. Yeah. But I knew you were kidding. Ah,
1: yeah, I you're LinkedIn. I
0: you're not Facebook. We it's different things here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think the thing that's missing in
1: a lot of advertising is stories. You like un- universally, it feels as though the only companies that are telling stories in their advertising, and the ones that are advertising on on you know TV, big networks, nobody cares that your product optimizes the who gives a shit process so that you can do this other thing. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. I care that I get time back. I care that I get money back. I care that I get my life back. I care that you understand who I am and where what my problems are, not at a high business level, what my keyboard looks like and my frustrations when the thing I try to do isn't working the way it's intending to. That's the way that you influence people. That's the way that you drum up engagement, and leads. And so for for the, the marketers out there, I think that becoming a better storyteller, which, don't get me wrong, is hard because it's easy for me to say we spent a half million on an ad campaign and we got Y dollars in return. It's easy enough to do that. A lot of attribution problems. Shout out to my it's,
0: marketing house people. It's easy it to, to do, do that. I'm, I am going to jump in. But when demand gen comes to play too... It gets a bit more complicated. But yes, Correct. every ad dollar, ROAS, we love our metrics and KPIs.
1: But I think the answer for a lot of B2B companies is it's focusing on thoughts, feelings of their, of, their, of their users, not just the users, but also their decision makers. So that as they're targeting, as they're coming up with what those campaigns can look like, they're going to resonate with what people, what people's day-to-day lives look like. And that's what makes me trust you, not the fact that you did something
0: for Google. Right, right. I, I've seen so many ads that are just like, hey, uh, we're Google certified or Google worked with us or Salesforce, like book a demo. Um, no right. one's going to book a demo from an ad. You can't say your ads aren't working when you're just running demo ads. This is LinkedIn. This is B2B. Everyone's more skeptical than ever. You need to tell your story through conversation ads, video ads, in-feed ads. You need to c- combine that. And again, you can't talk about yourself. You talk about the other person.
1: Things that we don't like to do because, and I don't know why, but in B2B, we get so caught up in like processes and ROI that we don't want to think about creativity. I've got a friend who is like, mar- B2B marketers 11 times out of 10 will choose the more boring option than do something... Dramatic. In the in the future, the drama is where it's going to live. Shout out to all of Bravo for making millions on drama. I was about to say, shout, shout out, out to the, the
0: real housewives.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting on my casting call. I live in LA now. I'm why can't I be a, a guest on the housewives of Beverly Hills?
0: You need to befriend one of them. Mm,
1: I'll I'll see what I can do. And you spend more time. And then you Beverly just have like Hills. really
0: big reactions. Yes, exactly. So you get on exactly. the show. I need to yeah. work on my,
1: well, I mean, half of them can't move their faces anymore. So at least I'll have facial drama.
0: Before we wrap up, if you had to give one piece of advice from somebody who is in SaaS or the startup world and is thinking about trying to make the move to a media company or a large company like LinkedIn, what would you tell them? Two things.
1: The first one is you, you've got to learn. And and the best way to to learn is to look at the companies that you want to, to work at. And they've got a wealth of information about their products on their blog. So there's a lot of different places to go and learn about the places that you want, want to apply. And that's going to help you learn about the company, the culture, and and really decide what's the right fit for you. But I think the big thing that I learned, it took me like you know almost a decade to learn this, is that the best jobs don't come from just applying into a random applicant tracking system. It comes from reaching out to people within the company you wanna work for to ask about what their days look like. It comes from uh, networking with people that, that you are, have a relationship with in that company that can help refer you for jobs. Um, it's, it's just a different way of working than I think we're used to. But if you can get over the kind of anxiety of nobody wants to hear from me, then I think the, the grass is
0: greener on the other side. Yeah, I, as somebody who is interviewing now and available for hire, I, I can say firsthand, build your network and, and put yourself out there. People want to help you. People want to support you. There's a reason that when you see a layoff post, there's there's so many likes. People want to help you. Lean into it. Ask for help. Uh, get in people's DMs and mails. You, you have to do it. So build your network, preferably before you're in this situation. But yeah, you, you will find people are, more times than not, likely to want to help you. Well, Matt, this has been such a fun episode. People may DM you now asking all this advice. Sorry about that, but also not sorry.
1: <laughs> Lee, thanks for having me on. It was, it was awesome to be here, and thanks again.
0: Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time for another episode of Lee2B.